0: G'day everyone and welcome back to Clinical Conversations, Ambulance Victoria's clinical podcast. I'm James Oswald, a paramedic and clinical practice development specialist here at AV. And I'm David Anderson, Acting Medical
1: Director of Ambulance Victoria.
0: Each month we'll be covering the important issues in pre-hospital and out-of-hospital care, bringing you the latest clinical changes and need-to-know clinical pearls. The decision to withhold or cease resuscitation is one of the most impactful and also one of the more confronting decisions that a paramedic can make. While Ambulance Victoria has maintained a guideline for withholding or ceasing resuscitation for many years, we also recognise the powerful role that culture and human factors play in these decisions. So stay tuned for some fantastic insights into how we can better tackle these really difficult cases.
1: So as James has mentioned, uh, as an emergency health service, Ambulance Victoria, we're really geared towards providing training and guidance to paramedics to save as many lives as possible in cardiac arrest. Um, however, we also have a duty to ensure that we're providing appropriate care that's in keeping with our patients' wishes and values um, and takes into account their baseline level of function and their comorbidities. And, and sometimes it can be difficult to, recon, uh, to reconcile these two equally important functions of a health service. And as James has mentioned, the, the decision to uh, withhold resuscitation or to cease resuscitation Can be an incredibly challenging one, but but one of the more important decisions that a paramedic will make on a a semi regular basis. Um, So, to help us um, talk through these issues and and answer any questions that we might have, I'm I'm really chuffed, and I'm not sure if chuffed is a a Kiwi word um, or if it's used in Australia, um, to to welcome Dr. Natalie Anderson to Clinical Conversations. Uh, Natalie's a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland and a practicing registered nurse with over 20 years of clinical experience in pre-hospital intensive care and emergency department settings. Natalie has a strong desire to understand and improve patient and family experiences of healthcare, particularly in the context of death, dying and bereavement. Her current research is focused on paramedic care of dying and deceased patients and bereaved families access to out-of-hour services in the last year of life, and experiences of -of end-of-life care and dying during COVID-19 restrictions, among many others. Her PhD focused on resuscitation decision-making and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, really making her one of the world's leading experts in this area. So we're incredibly lucky to have Natalie join us today. On a more personal note, Natalie and I go way back, having been volunteer ambulance officers together in Auckland in the late 90s. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Natalie.
2: Thanks very much, David. That's um, quite an introduction.
1: (laughs) You'll have to get used to having these grand introductions now. Um, So look, I'd be be really happy just to sit back and let you talk for half an hour because I know that whatever you have to say will be fascinating for our listeners. But I thought I might just um, start off by by asking a pretty open-ended question and asking you just to really talk to us about your research and and tell us perhaps what the most important findings from your research are into decision-making in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest by paramedics or indeed anyone involved in pre-hospital care um, were?
2: So uh, my my PhD, uh, I undertook part-time over six years, so I had the opportunity to uh, gather quite a lot of data from from the people who are making these decisions in New Zealand. Uh, I interviewed uh, a number of paramedics and um, emergency medical technicians here in New Zealand. Uh, I ran some focus groups with people who are educators and managers. Uh, and I also undertook a survey of the paramedic students in New Zealand who who uh, obviously are, are learning a little bit about this before they're, they're going out as qualified paramedics. I think probably um, The direction of my PhD changed while I was doing it. I was very interested in how these decisions to start resuscitation and and when to stop resuscitation, I was very interested in how they were made and what the experience of making those decisions was like. Um, But as I progressed, I started to see perhaps the potential for Uh, a greater focus on preparing and supporting paramedics to make those decisions, and that's uh, really the direction that I I took with the remainder of my research. I think uh, some really important findings were that it's really challenging and even paramedics who had been working uh, in the field for longer than you and I, (laughs) uh, you know, 30 plus years, they still were able to give me examples where they had found the decision to to stop really quite complex, uh, that they'd had to think a lot about it, uh, and that even those who had spent a lot of time uh, understanding the prognostic indicators, the things that might suggest that a person has very little chance of of surviving uh, with ongoing resuscitation efforts, that they still had situations where stopping was um, was really a difficult decision, and they might have even doubted themselves uh, afterwards. Um, so that was that was really interesting for me. I think uh, the other one of the other really important things I, I discovered was that um, that we really spend a lot of time, to, as you've mentioned, uh, teaching paramedics how to be excellent at saving lives. Uh, and it's arguably a part of uh, the paramedic identity that saving lives is, is part of the job that, that paramedics do, much as um, I would consider a part of my role as, as an emergency nurse that I might get to, to be involved in saving lives. Um, but I guess we spend so much time practicing uh, the technical aspects of resuscitation that perhaps we haven't sufficiently prepared paramedics for uh, the possibility that even if they do a perfect, amazing job of of, um, responding to a cardiac arrest and resuscitating or attempting to resuscitate the patient, that that might not be successful. And we don't actually spend a lot of time in training or in our guidelines uh, thinking about what you do if it doesn't work. Uh, or preparing them for the, the, I guess, likelihood that they will go to people who um, who even attempting resuscitation is, is not, uh, in their best interests, is not likely to succeed. So uh, one of the questions that I asked the paramedics when I first interviewed them was what was the difference between cardiac arrest and death? Uh, And a lot of them spent a lot of time trying to answer that question and struggling with it. Uh, And I don't know that experience made the answers uh, more confident. I think that even those who had seen a lot of cardiac arrest and a lot of death uh, still realize that it is conceptually quite um, a lot to think about. Um, and I'm sure you have some things to say about that, uh, David, because you're often caring for people who are in that um, that zone of are they dead yet?
1: It's really interesting. It, it's it's truly just fascinating because it does. As you speak, I reflect on on the two roles that I have as a as a, as the medical director of an ambulance service, but also as as an intensive care physician. As you see, you know. Um, Looking after people who, who by and large are are mostly dead, but but not but not quite there yet, Um, and and I guess I have the luxury of of many things, of of experience, but also of having um, you know a a large team of people to help me make decisions and and um, and. and a, a, a culture in intensive care medicine, which I suspect is, 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 which I know is different to the culture in, in paramedicine, and, and I'm sure everyone, you know, brings their own baggage into into these decisions. It's um, it's it's really interesting. Um, we might just um, after that great introduction, maybe just work through a couple of areas, talking specifically about. Um, withholding resuscitation and then ceasing resuscitation. And then it sounds as though we're going to take the same journey as your PhD, thankfully, in much less time, and then go on and talk a bit about um, the, you know, the idea of preparing paramedics to deal with, with death and dying. Um, and so I guess in terms of withholding resuscitation, obviously at Ambulance Victoria, like most ambulance services now, I imagine we have a, a clinical practice guideline to, to guide the withholding and ceasing of resuscitation. Um, and and I have no doubt we'll be updating it after this podcast. (laughs) Um, But in terms of withholding resuscitation, our our guideline um, directs paramedics really to consider three factors. Um, The presence of an advanced care directive, um, and there's there's been a bit of legislative change in Victoria in the last couple of years to really reinforce the importance of advanced care directives. Um, Obvious death, um, and, and no prospect of successful resuscitation which is defined in our guideline as, as an initial rhythm of asystole and more than 10 minutes from the time of collapse to the time of ambulance attendance. Um, and now given what you've just told us about, about even experienced paramedics struggling to decide between criteria two and three, um, you know, what thoughts do you have on, on these factors and, and does, does, does your experience or your research lend us, you know, give you the ability to suggest a better way we might guide paramedics in withholding resuscitation?
2: So I guess um, speaking to those, those three factors, uh, the documented wishes of a patient, um, certainly here in New Zealand, are not commonly available to paramedics. Uh, we don't have a lot of people completing that kind of documentation in New Zealand at all, uh, but even if they have uh, whether it is available to be seen by the paramedics when they turn up to a cardiac arrest, um, and whether it is current and provides clear guidance about CPR uh, in the in the current context, um, those things can also make that uh, a greyer area than you than you might expect for what is supposed to be a you know a legal gu- document of guidance. Um, I think the word obvious obvious death. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting research around how experts, expert clinicians um, recognise something like the deceased patient, the the irreversibly dead patient. Um, And if you've not seen uh, someone who has died uh, and has been dead for an extended period of time, you know, more than half an hour, more than an hour, um, has died in a way that is not likely to be reversed by CPR, then you're not likely to recognise that, and we are certainly um, there. There are anecdotes out there about an experienced uh, ambulance personnel uh, commencing a resuscitation effort, even when there are signs that those of us who have seen it before would recognise as um, as obvious death, including rigor mortis. Um, I'm afraid there are examples in every country of CPR being performed uh, on patients who, who are obviously um, experiencing – no, they're not experiencing it – people who are obviously in <laughs> rigging waters um, or have other signs like venous pooling and, and, and things that, that would suggest to an experienced eye that, that death had occurred some time pre- previously. Uh, which I guess brings us round to the time of collapse uh, issue, which is actually one that is quite um, quite problematic for paramedics because quite often the family don't actually know when the person has collapsed, uh, unless it's a witnessed collapse and someone has conveniently collapsed in front of an audience uh, at a family gathering or in a public place. Uh, sometimes family members might come across someone who is uh, lying in their bed or has collapsed somewhere in the house where they haven't even heard them collapse or even if they perhaps have heard a funny noise and then they've investigated later. Uh, So one of the issues, I guess, around timing is that the the time of collapse is sometimes a bit difficult to determine and that that can actually be quite an important decision-making factor uh, for paramedics. The second question was a lot harder, David, in terms of um, improving the guidance. I think perhaps um, helping paramedics to recognise these three things and be confident that they can recognise them is something that we can be be doing. So familiarising them with the advanced care directive document. um, (laughs) familiarising them with obvious death sounds like um, something that might meet with some cultural and and ethical (laughs) issues. But in actual fact, you know, I was fortunate that when I was quite young, um, I worked in a rest home and I saw quite a few people die at the end of their their life or or in a context where we were allowing natural death. And so I was able to recognise death even as I was a novice uh, ambulance officer and then a novice nurse. But some of our paramedics have not seen anyone. They've never seen a corpse, they've never been to an open casket funeral, they've they've not seen death before. And so uh, I think helping them to recognise what death looks like is important. Uh, and I'm not sure the best way to do that. What, what do you think, David?
1: Look, it's really interesting. I, I, as you were just saying that, I was just reflecting on the fact that you know a lot of the a lot of the work that I do on end of life care in the hospital. Is is almost directly related to um, frustration, for want of a better word, around the, the similar issue, the absence of any of any conversation around death as a as a phenomenon in our society. Um, you know, a couple of generations ago, um, you know, people used to um, you know, by and large, die at home and 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 die frequently. <laughs> um, um, although the frequency of death hasn't increased, you know, but it's <laughs> still one hundred percent. But um, you know, it's interesting. Look, we're we're a largely not to the extent of some other societies, but we're increasingly becoming a death-denying society. And and as we, you know, as, as the as the career path for paramedics changes from from people who've often had other careers, which or, or you know, a bit of life experience, which may have involved a bit of at least a bit of experience to of death and dying. To um to you know um young graduates, um, which is uh, I think a very good thing, but that comes with it, you know the issues that we discuss. I, I think the I think you know at least starting a conversation around the the fact that that death is a normal death and dying are, are normal and expected part of living and something for us to be familiar with. In terms of of getting exposure, yeah, I don't know. I do remember when um. You you might have been there, Natalie, when we were volunteers. We went to a, we went to a um, we went on a field trip as a, with our with our um, division to a, um, a funeral home, and I found that even as someone who'd had a bit of experience with death already, I found it incredibly um, um, rewarding and um, and and insightful, really, just to see that side of things. Um, but just a, a way of um, you know normalising death. James, as, as a paramedic, I guess, hearing this and and thinking that you were, um, you know, that you were well supported by these wonderful guidelines that we have, how, how do you feel thinking about what Natalie just said?
0: Well, uh, mostly I feel relieved that we're not alone. Uh, these aren't just confronting questions for me or for AV, they're, that they're, they're difficult for everyone around the world. So I think given that it is a difficult area and... Often people will be feeling a bit cognitively overloaded and, and a bit nervous. Uh, if you then add that into inexperience, it becomes very challenging. Uh, I, I always told this story to my students in the hope that it would, it would make them feel better when they stuffed something up. But uh, the first arrest I went to as a uni student. I got there and I opened up the back of the monitor and I pulled out two sets of pads. We carried adult and we carried peds. One was red had a big picture of an adult and it said adult all over it and the other one was pink and it just screams it's got, a, I think it had a picture of a baby on it. Uh, but for a second there I couldn't tell the difference. I was so nervous. I was just frozen in this moment. So it's hard. Um, but after a few jobs it gets, it gets easier and, as you say, you start to know what death looks like. Um, and, well, I mean it's still confronting people uh, and you might be still shaking a little bit, but but it is easier. Now with my guideline developer hat on, though, I'm wondering as we speak if there are ways that we can improve awareness and, and understanding of what death looks like. Obviously, guidelines can't fix everything. Uh, and, and clearly there's no substitute for actually seeing it. But given that we can't bottle experience... Uh, unfortunately, I'm just wondering if there might be a way we can improve confidence uh, in the interpretation of the CPG. I suppose uh, right now, though, I think the best thing people can do is just to know the guideline really well. Uh, you can take great confidence in knowing that the evidence supports you, that AV supports you, and that you're doing the right thing by the patient.
1: I think it's um, I think it's really important. You know, it's a really important reminder for me. Um, and this is a comment I've heard Natalie say on many occasions, and I've heard many others say it as well that um, you know CPR isn't isn't a treatment for for normal dying, um, and uh, it's a treatment to reverse cardiac arrest, which is a different phenomenon. And I might use that as a little segue into a, into a scenario. Um, and I'll be really keen to hear James and Natalie's responses to this. So. Um, you're a paramedic and you're called to a priority zero cardiac arrest in a nursing home um, cpr in progress and you arrive to find a 90 year old patient um, who's handed over as having um, advanced dementia and frailty and who's um, bedbound in the nursing home um, but there there's no advanced care directive and and they're for everything in the words of the of the nursing staff at the nursing home Bystander CPR is in progress, um, and the initial rhythm is asystole. And and you're in a a, a country area, and unfortunately, the response time was was 15 minutes. So it's between 15 and 20 minutes from the time of collapse to the time that you've arrived. So, you know, this is the situation, James, where you could argue that the, um, the, the guideline for withholding resuscitation holds, that there's no prospect of successful resuscitation because the initial rhythms is asystole and there's more than 10 minutes to collapse. Now, I would argue there's a number of other reasons that there's no prospect of successful resuscitation, but there are well-meaning health professionals doing CPR.
0: So what would you do? Ooh, a really difficult situation, but a really common one too. So two things come to mind. Firstly, I agree that the patient meets our criteria for no prospect of resuscitation. A purely because they're in asystole and it's been longer than 10 minutes since they arrested. I mean that's even putting aside all the other elements to the story and I suppose sticking with that for a tick, uh, sticking with putting all of those other bits aside, it's a good time to talk about bystander CPR in that sort of patient, in the patient with asystole um, and, and a long downtime because what we see a bit of is CPR being started by a bystander at the direction of the call taker. We have triple we have zero directed uh, call taker CPR. And when we arrive, uh, it's clear that there's no chance of resuscitation in some circumstances. You know They're in ACEs, they've been down for a long time. But it's understandable that some people feel pretty uncomfortable about uh, withholding the resus when they get there. So two things on that. Bystander CPR in that population, that particular one, doesn't improve outcomes, in a sense, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, they're they're kind of not in cardiac arrest. They've passed away and nothing's going to improve that situation. Um, They're dead. And that's quite a different patient to the person who collapses in front of someone, they get some bystander CPR and they're in VF when we get there. It's a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, Bystander CPR is so important in the chain of survival, but in patients with long down times and asystole on arrival, it's its not going to help. The second thing that I thought when you started that scenario, when, when you started, I, I thought you were going to say that um, they're in VF. I, I didn't think you were going to say they're in asystole. So if they are in a shockable rhythm, then things get really uncomfortable. I've heard it said before that CPRs for people who weren't meant to die um, – and it's for those people whose time hasn't come yet. and I think it's fair to say that this person's time has come, but they're in VF. So, and the nursing home staff have said, you know, they're for everything. They don't meet our criteria in the guideline to withhold resuscitation. So, well, we're, we're in an awful situation. We know CPR probably isn't the right thing for this person. Uh, and and even, even worse than that, that they may not actually want it. It may be against their wishes despite the fact that there's no paperwork there. But there is no paperwork there, uh, there's no medical decision maker present and the guideline doesn't explicitly allow withholding resuscitation. So this this isn't just us. I mean this is a problem in many parts of the world and I've spoken to a lot of people around the world and I've heard some people quietly whisper, well, you know, we just do a bit of half-hearted CPR uh, until we can justify stopping. And I think that's awful, but probably not in the sense that you think I'm going to say, I I don't think they're awful. I think it's awful to be in the position where you feel you have to do that. Um, I think it's ultimately, it's essentially a systems issue. By law, we're not required to provide futile treatment. Um, But what exactly constitutes futile is a bit of a gap as far as I can see. Uh, and I'd be very happy to be proven wrong on this, very happy. Um, so I think there's probably an opportunity to have the right structures in place to provide a bit more support in that area, I reckon. Um, so that's what comes to mind for me. But really, I'd be interested to hear what Natalie has to say. Uh,
2: yeah, so so thank you um, for providing this example, David. I, I actually use a similar example uh, when I'm discussing decision-making with, with paramedic students here in New Zealand. I think that one of the really tricky things about this kind of example um, is that there is already a resuscitation uh, effort underway. And here in New Zealand, our, our last uh, registry data showed that 95% of cardiac arrests attended by ambulance personnel, uh, that the, the fire crews arrive first and, and I'm sure that you're seeing too that there is, uh, COVID's interrupted it a little bit, but there, you know, there is an increased amount of competent CPR being done by bystanders, um, whether it's because they've been told to over the phone, because they've done their own training, because there are health professionals on scene. Um, I think that it definitely is something that impacts on decision-making, and, and I think it should. I think it probably needs to change the way that you manage the, the termination of resuscitation, which is something that James alluded to. I think I'd just like to throw in an additional complicating factor here and say uh, I can think of one situation where I would want to continue with a, with a brief resuscitation effort for this patient, and that is if I suspected a choking um I guess if I knew that there'd been an asystole for a period of time, that that might make it a lot easier. But actually I know several paramedics described rest home chokings. They're quite common when you have advanced dementia and your swallows affected. Uh, it's often witnessed because it happens at a mealtime and in the people are being assisted with eating. Uh, and it is a reversible cause, and so if we can get in fast enough uh, to try and reverse an airway problem in a, in a person like this, um, I can see that that creates an additional layer of complication. Um, if they've been in asystole for a while, which meets your criteria for withholding, then I guess that, that makes it uh, a lot simpler, but it's not always as clear-cut as that. I think uh, being able to explain to the people who are doing CPR on a scene on a scene that they that you're going to stop the resuscitation efforts um, is really a skill that a lot of paramedics would uh, benefit from, either getting a chance to see done, you know, getting a chance to see an experienced person model that doing that well, uh, or perhaps even something that we should be adding into simulation these days. It's a non-technical skill, so it doesn't uh, get the same amount of kudos as the technical skills of resuscitation, but actually being able to explain to the people that are doing CPR that they've done the best they could, that they've done the right thing by trying CPR, and that they haven't failed in any way is um, is really important. Uh, and I think particularly uh, when you see... Uh, responders, I'm not sure if you use Good Sam across where you are. Do you have Good Sam responders? Yeah, yeah, there? we do. Yes. Yeah, so you know, if you have a Good Sam responder there who has gone to the trouble of locating an AED and and you know doing their very best to resuscitate someone uh, who you have determined as a paramedic, you've determined they've actually died and the, and that the resuscitation is not likely to be successful at this stage, uh, they can often be left feeling that they've done something wrong or they've failed to do something right. And so uh, being able to kind of talk through that processing and make an opportunity um, at some point before you drive away to, to let them know that actually they did everything right and the reason that the AD didn't fire is because the, the patient had died and it wouldn't have worked um, is, is probably a really important part of wrapping up that recess.
0: That's
1: really interesting. One of the things that I, that I think that I'm most grateful for at the level of, of my career that I'm at is the, as an you know, as a, as a fairly ex- relatively experienced intensivist now, I guess I, I can arrive at a scene like this and um, and assimilate the all of the medical information and the the, the social and, and uh, other background information and and make a decision. So uh, the scenario that we spoke about of you know, well, what if the patient was in VF? Um, you know, uh, I'm lucky to have the ability to go off piste and say, well. You know, let's 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 give them a shock and see what happens, or or just say actually it doesn't matter if they're in VF because there's so many other things going against them that in my experience this patient's not going to survive and it's not in their interest to continue. And it's got me thinking, well, you know, nothing I didn't I didn't attend a class at medical school that taught me that. I didn't attend a class during my registrar training that taught me that experience and 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 role modelling has taught me that. Um, and so I guess this is a bit of a question without notice, Natalie. did Has your research given you indication as to whether, you know, the, this, these decisions that I've spoken about are nothing to do with me being a doctor. It's just to do with me having attended resuscitations for um, two decades. Uh, so surely a, a paramedic with a similar level of experience should be able to to make these decisions. Is there any evidence to to say whether paramedics can or cannot accurately prognosticate, and 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 whether and how they feel about making those decisions.
2: Well, you've got it. You've got a. Um, it's a really good question, but you've got a challenge in that one hundred percent of people who are for whom resuscitation is withheld or terminated do die. <laughs> it is. I think that a lot of what makes decision making um, difficult is that many of the the prognostic indicators are not easily verifiable on scene at a, at a cardiac arrest in the community. People don't really, and James, I'm sure will speak to this, but don't really, uh, often aren't able to provide a succinct summary of the patient's comorbidities, quality of life, uh, how long they've collapsed for, um, sometimes it's difficult to determine how good the quality of CPR might have been and how uh, whether there were delays between the time of collapse and commencing CPR. Uh, and some of those prognostic indicators are quite important. So where they're known and it's quite clear what's going on, the, the paramedic can feel really confident about making the decision. But where one or more of those is difficult to determine, or, We have some really good encouraging prognostic indicators like youth and a witnessed collapse combined with some really grave prognostic indicators like a really long um, duration of collapse um, and and the presence of a a non-shockable rhythm. Uh, Then we get really confused. And and I think the algorithms for decision making aren't very good at acknowledging that that kind of thing happens with, with prognostic factors.
1: Do you think there's a role, um, maybe to you, James, for like? Would you, would you, as a paramedic, let's say you're you're working in a in a rural or regional area, there's no intensive care paramedic immediately available.
0: Um, is there a role for having a chat to the clinician? Well, I think as, as a as a general statement. I, I think we should always welcome uh, an extra an extra brain, an extra set of eyes, an extra set of ears, and and some expert advice. Um, The thing that jumped out at me about what you were saying about your decision-making capacity, David, was two two decades of being exposed to cardiac arrests. And it reminded me of a piece of research done by uh, one of our researchers here, Kylie Dyson, and and some of the team from the Research and Evaluation Department that uh, said something to the effect of uh, paramedics attending uh, 1.4 cardiac arrests per year and that that was uh, decreasing. I have absolutely no doubt that I've got that number a little bit wrong or described that, uh, improbably, but you you take my point that, um, it's, it's actually really, really rare for us to be making these decisions or relative, you know, compared to perhaps an, an intensivist. So it's very, very difficult for us to build up that experience base. And so in that, um, with that being said, uh, it's an area where I would always welcome an extra set of eyes and uh, an extra opinion. Someone who, um, you know, like yourself is doing this on a regular basis, has decades of experience doing it, uh, welcome uh, their advice and their support in making that sort of decision. Did, did you notice
1: through your conversations with people nationally, uh, I would presume that the more, the more frequently people are exposed to cardiac arrest, um, presumably the more comfortable they become. But are there any other, um, anything, anything else that you noticed in, in terms of exposure?
2: I think something that's important to bring up is, is that, uh, unfortunately, those who are least well supported by experienced personnel and, and, and other people arriving on scene and having the proximity of, of senior backup are often those who are more rural, rurally located uh, and then if, you, if you're a, a paramedic who's working uh, a bit further away from a main centre, uh, statistically you are less likely to be going to many cardiac arrests because you're going to fewer jobs. Um, and unfortunately, you're also much more likely to either know the person that's arrested or know their auntie who teaches at the local primary school's cousin who's, you know, there's some kind of connection somewhere uh, and I think that it's it's well accepted that making a decision to terminate resuscitation uh, when there's a personal connection to that to that uh, person who has died is going to be a lot more difficult. And I think it's really um, a really an important area where being able to phone a, a more experienced clinician, which is something that New Zealand paramedics uh, can do, is really important. Unfortunately, again, uh, the, the rural and remote paramedics are less likely to have access to uh, phone service and and the ability to be able to do that. So, yes, I think someone who's who's living or is working at a at a an urban station, a station in a metropolitan centre, uh, is likely to attend more cardiac arrests and likely to benefit from seeing other paramedics going through the process of withholding or terminating resuscitation in a way that is is confident and and is sensitive. Um, I think we need to find a way to support the inevitable novice uh, that is going to encounter cardiac arrest with very little experience of these things. So I'm not sure what AV offers that that novice.
1: Well look certainly yeah that's a really good question. We we have the we certainly have the clinician model. I'm not sure if we copied it from you or you copied it from us um and i I think you know i one of the one of the the first things one of the first things that i learned as a consultant um when i finished my training and became a specialist um was that even quite senior people ask each other questions all the time there wouldn't be a day goes by that i don't ask another consultant a question or another consultant asks me um and i used to i used to kind of Run away to the office and try not to do it in front of the registrars. And now I'm now I'm quite comfortable, very openly asking questions in front of registrars and, and other junior doctors and and nursing staff because it's important that they see that kind of collaboration. And I think paramedicine has suffered somewhat from a a sense of of, of isolation and just you know kind of go out and do the job. You're on your own, but the, it's a different world now. And, and I, I would encourage any paramedic to call the clinician or, 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 or call me, just, just Ambulance Victoria paramedics, that is, not anyone else who's, who's listening <laughs> um, for, for, for advice at any time. Um, and look, moving on, you mentioned cessation of resuscitation um, there when you were discussing, you know, the difficulties in rural and regional areas. So probably a good um, segue to move on to talking about cessation of resuscitation. Our um, our guideline directs resuscitation to continue for 45 minutes if the initial rhythm is ventricular fibrillation and um, 30 to 45 minutes if it's pulseless electrical activity and asystole. We do know, however, that sometimes paramedics stop resuscitation before this, and there's likely many reasons for this. Um, Natalie, did your research give you any insight as to why this might occur?
2: Uh, Yes, it did, David. (laughs) I think that one of the issues you have is that paramedics are human beings, uh, and long may they be. Uh, and that I guess, as all clinicians are limited to the experiences that they've had, the the um, the learning that they've had, the world view that they have, uh, I suspect that it is quite likely, uh, citing Kylie uh, Kylie's research, that uh, that some of the paramedics have never. Uh, seen anyone get ROSC from a, from a resuscitation. Uh, they may have uh, perhaps had a situation where a patient was resuscitated uh, but didn't survive uh, after that. Uh, I guess they may have uh, perhaps at some stage had a senior paramedic, a, um, an intensive care paramedic, arrive and uh, make them feel like their resuscitation efforts were futile and uh, perhaps not have managed that as diplomatically as it could have been managed. Is that a fair thing to say, James?
0: Yeah, I think um, managing power gradients is a problem that uh, or a challenge that everyone faces in healthcare. Uh, and I think there's there's an incredible opportunity to improve the way that um, more, more senior or more experienced um, practitioners work through those difficult situations with uh, pa- uh, with other practitioners who are less experienced.
2: Yeah, I think I think some of the participants here in New Zealand had experiences where where a senior um, paramedic and perhaps someone that they respected and looked up to and and like James has said, you know, there's a power dynamic there. Um, they've come in and said, you know, stop. What are you doing? And I can understand that the paramedic's thought process, the experienced paramedic's um, thought process, might be uh, along those lines. But you know, diplomatically discussing um, whether you are wanting to continue with resuscitation at this time, whether it's appropriate, whether it's it's met the um, the guideline requirement, which is very clear about the minimum amount of time that that you want paramedics to be uh, undertaking a resuscitation attempt. I think that that would be a lot more valuable. And I think your guidelines are very clear. Um, about the duration of resuscitation that is expected, uh, and there there is um, some really interesting research coming out that that suggests that the survivorship from prolonged resuscitation is better than we might have thought. Um, and as I said, we certainly don't have people surviving if we stop resuscitation. <laughs>
1: we do, James. James, you've so you've chatted to some of our research and evaluation folks who manage the Victorian. Um, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong now. The Victorian Ambulance Cardiac Arrest um, Registry. What did they have to say about our chances of survival after prolonged resuscitation?
0: Yeah, I did, uh, and it was it was a really interesting conversation. And uh, the, the the gist of it was that shockable rhythms, or patients with an initial shockable rhythm, I should say, uh, are a completely different kettle of fish to patients who have a non-shockable initial rhythm, usually. Uh, so a really interesting tidbit of information that I took from that conversation was that uh, patients with initial VF still have a 1 in 20 chance of survival at the 30 minute mark. Now that boggled my mind. I, I, I had no idea it would be it would be that frequent. And it really highlights the fact that um, survival after the 30 minute mark is possible. Uh, you could even say more frequent, certainly more frequent than I, than I expected. And that patients with initial VF uh, really should get a good go at resuscitation up to the 45-minute mark, 45 minutes as a minimum.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And that that increasingly reflects in hospital practice as well. Um, You know, we used to continue resuscitation on scene because um, the resuscitation provided by paramedics was literally no different to that which would happen in the emergency department. But there is now, as I'm sure you're all aware, a small subset of patients, and it is these you know, relatively young patients in refractory VF um, where there are different things we can do in hospital now um, from, you know, um, ECMO CPR or even taking patients to the cath lab with CPR in progress, um, which actually can potentially give some patients a, a really, really good outcome. And this isn't just, you know, by survival, you know, I mean, you know, walking out of hospital neurologically intact a week or two later. Um so I think it is really important to clearly differentiate the patient with the initial rhythm of VF. Um, you know, they 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 really deserve uh, a, a good go um, if they're you know if the if they've got if everything else lines up. You know, taking into account you know what information you might have about other comorbidities and, and baseline functional status and so on.
2: I think something that's really important that has taken me a lot of navel gazing in my PhD to think about is that that one in 30 survival rate for a 30-minute reset, you know, at minute 30, that does not apply to the 99-year-old that's lying in, a, in an incontinence pad with advanced dementia who weighs 35 kilos. That's, that is that is a figure that is based on people who we were doing a prolonged resuscitation on, so presumably witness collapse, definitely in VF when they arrived, and presumably the paramedics are continuing to think that they've got a chance at living. So it's really important not to use survival statistics in a blanket sense, because if you go to a young person who, you know, all of the all of the favourable uh, prognostic factors apply, maybe they're even a little chilled just for, you know, for an, an added bonus, their chance of survival is higher than one in, in 30, after 30 minutes. So I guess... Your decision-making is based on population statistics. Uh, your, your algorithms and your, your guidance, your AV guidance is based on that data, but an experienced clinician is aware that, uh, the, about the bell curve and where their patient is likely to sit in the bell curve of distribution of survival. Uh, and that's why someone like David uh, would not feel compelled to do CPR on that older person. And in New Zealand... Um, paramedics are not expected to do CPR on that person. Um, Some of them will, most of them won't.
0: So I think we've already touched on the fact that we we see relatively few cardiac arrests and the vast majority of them end in the patient dying in our presence at the scene. And we've realised when we've been having discussions before we were recording this program, this podcast that we, we give relatively little guidance to paramedics on how to support families through the process, those that are left behind. Do you have any suggestions or thoughts on how we might go about that?
2: So I'm really, um, I'm glad you asked that question, uh, James, because that's really the direction that my research is going in uh, now that I've finished my PhD Uh, We're really big on using evidence to inform our practice uh, in the pre-hospital setting and where I work in the emergency department, but actually there is a real dearth of evidence, there is very little evidence about the best way to care for people who uh, have had a loved one die in the community and who call an ambulance. We don't really know why people call an ambulance when they're aware that their loved one has died because sometimes they do. Sometimes they know that this is death. Um, sometimes there's some element of them having anticipated that, that that person might die. And I think at very advanced age, it's probably fair to say it's something that's crossed their mind at some stage um, and for people with advanced, um, with advanced illness and life-limiting illness. Um, I think it's very difficult to measure the, the uh, interventions of the paramedic at this point. And so we haven't really had a look at whether we're doing a good job after the patient's died. I think that you have probably seen, James, that, that some people do do a great job of supporting the bereaved, of managing the scene, um, of, of reinforcing the importance of CPR to those that perhaps have attempted CPR and explaining why it hasn't worked. And, and of supporting each other, you know, if you're with a with a new paramedic that really hasn't seen this before, um, giving them a chance to say how they're feeling about that or, or giving them a chance to talk through what they're thinking about. But the problem is we haven't really done a lot of research in that space. We don't really know what is best, um, best practice. And I, I can see that there's a lot of um, advice going to paramedics, which is based on things like oncology practice where uh, an oncologist might be breaking bad news to a, a person who has a, can- a terminal cancer. And I'm not sure that that uh, extends very well to the context of grandma's just cardiac arrested um, over the, the lunch table or, you know, someone's just cardiac arrested sitting in their chair in front of the television um, and so I think that is something that is really important and, and I think it can be done really well and really sensitively and it can be a rewarding part of paramedic pre- practice that a death um, doesn't have to be seen as a failure uh, but that we've got a long way to go in, in kind of reinforcing that and, and part of that it means more research and, and measuring more outcomes after death.
0: At what point should... Paramedics be starting to have that conversation about um, the fact that the resuscitation effort is going to end in death.
2: I I think um, rather than saying what should be done, I can tell you what uh, experienced paramedics have described um, and what researchers have seen. I think that a warning shot is a really good idea. That's that's uh, the raising the idea that the the CPR effort at the moment isn't working and. And being able to, I guess, test the waters with both the crew who are, or the people who are providing resuscitation, the team, um, and also the family members or or the loved ones, the bystanders who are present, to kind of uh, get a feeling for the idea that this maybe isn't going to work, and and that's a two way communication process. It's about telling them, hey, this this person's heart isn't beating. That the, the you know, this is a this is a a problem that may mean that they they are not going to survive, um, and and obviously the word choice is very uh, very context specific and depends on the people you're talking to, but also getting a feeling for whether that is totally uh, a new concept to the people that they're rejecting that that idea or whether there may be some level of them already having come to that conclusion themselves, um, and so yeah, I think that that bit just before you stop CPR. There's quite a lot of skill involved in that in that part of things, James, and and no doubt that's something that you you have seen done well, and also probably seen done not so well.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think uh, all, all paramedics would have seen examples of both all around the world. It's something that I really struggle with because I want so much to be um, good in that moment. It's such a it's a short moment. You're not getting it back, and it's so important to the, the to those left behind. So I feel a great deal of. Uh, responsibility to make it uh as 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 atraumatic as possible um but it's a very difficult area and as i say not one we get a huge amount of experience with so uh thank you so much for your insights into that today
1: i just want to echo what james has said this has been a this has been a great experience to 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 particularly for me to to hear about of course friends um research and um, and also to hear about something that's so that's so relevant to to all of us, and some really fascinating insights into into the research that Natalie's done. So I'd like to join James in thanking Natalie uh, for coming along to join us on the podcast today.
2: Thank you both. It's um, it's been a great conversation, and I think it's an important area we need to be talking a bit more about.